Good morning, church. Good to see you. As you can tell, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series today. Uh, follow me, and uh, over the course, better, better part of the summer, we'll be walking through the lives of uh, various of the uh, 12 disciples, beginning today with Peter. Uh, if you remember the past three Sundays, uh, Pastor Jeremy was uh, walking through some of the selected attributes of God, characteristics, character qualities of God, kind of, kind of as a setup for this sermon series. So, so if we're to follow Jesus, what kind of a God is this? And the attributes of Jesus, of God himself, help to, to kind of set the stage for um, for beginning today as we walk through this sermon series, looking at the lives of the 12 disciples. And I don't know, I don't know what comes to your mind uh, when you think through the disciples, especially, especially the 12. I mean, do you have some faves? Do you, do you have, yeah, not gonna, like, no, not doing Judas, all that kind of good stuff. I mean, what resonates with you as you think through the 12? Is it, is it that they actually, like, they walked with Jesus, like walked with Jesus, tread the same roads, talked with him, conversed with him, uh, they spent time together, nights together, meals together for about three, three and a half years. That's, Zach, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, or... Was it their miscues? Like, they didn't always get everything right, did they? And certainly, the guy we're going to look at today, we're going to kick off with Peter, they did not get everything. Peter did not get everything. We don't get everything right, do we? So, to kind of set the stage for, uh, for the 12, I want to show a chart up on, up on the screen, and just I'm not going to spend a, a, a ton of time on it, but uh, the disciple groupings, Matthew, Luke, Mark, and then in Acts, um, it seems as if they're kind of divided into three groupings, and there's a consistent leader in front of each grouping. As you can see, Peter, uh, uh, across the board, is always mentioned first, whether it's Matthew, whether it's Luke, whether it's Mark, whether it's Acts. Second grouping, Philip. Third grouping, James, the son of Alphaeus. And notice in the groupings, it's the same disciples, maybe in a little bit different order, but it's the same disciples in each grouping. I just wanted to put that in place to let you know that there, was, like, there were these groupings, and when they were mentioned, they were mentioned for a reason and in a specific order. And we're going to walk through those 12 sometimes we're going to combine, especially as we get later in the series. But on the front end, we'll walk through individuals. So, the way of discipleship, right? Follow me. The way of discipleship. I want to put in place on the front end of this series um, a couple of like broad definitions for discipleship. Number one, what is a disciple? In the New Testament, fundamentally, a disciple was a learner. From the noun mathetes, verb manthano, which simply meant to learn. Now, check this out. 
Over 250 times in the New Testament, the noun is used, and some 25 times the, the point is this. The New Testament is serious about discipleship. Discipleship, or as you're going to see in just a minute, apprenticeship to Jesus is not an afterthought in the New Testament. It's not an afterthought in the Gospels, and it's not an afterthought in the Epistles. So this is one of those like front and center items that rises to the surface in the entire New Testament. Discipleship, apprenticeship, in the way and to the way of Jesus. Next slide, kind of a working definition. A disciple of Jesus is, I've already said this, his apprentice. Now when you think of the word apprentice, you think of somebody who learns under a master teacher. We are Jesus' disciples. He is the master teacher. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't learn things from other people. But fundamentally, I am not primarily a disciple of Dan. I can be a disciple of Dan in some sense of the word, but ultimately, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I am his apprentice. And as a disciple of Jesus, we will never not be his apprentice. We will always be learning more and more and more. And you're going to see that at the very end of the message. We will, there's always more to learn about the grace and knowledge of Jesus. His apprentice who is being transformed. Paul talks about in Corinthians this idea of we are being transformed from glory to glory. From one stage, if I could put it that way, of discipleship, of apprenticeship in the way of Jesus, of looking like Jesus from one stage to another, from glory to glory. We are being present tense, transformed. I think we do a, a, an injustice to the New Testament when we think, well, on the other side, it's all going to be good. No, the change, the transformation begins now from glory to glory, from looking like Jesus so much to looking like Jesus more and more and more, being transformed by his life into his likeness. In the context of community, Jake, when I was putting this together, I thought of you. First sermon uh, that you walked into in this church, I made a comment something along these lines. In the Christian life, there's no such thing as a John Wayne Christian. No such thing as an isolated solo, I can do it on my own. That's not discipleship. That's not apprenticeship in the way of Jesus. It is in and always is in the context of community. There are a plethora of one another passages in the New Testament. How we ought to treat one another. How we ought not treat one another. Rick Warren put it this way. He said, the interesting thing about being a disciple of Jesus is this. You have to be around people. Sometimes irritating, all the time imperfect people. Truth? Facts, right? Like, that's the way it is. You can't 
learn to love in isolation. That is an impossibility. The only way you can learn to love is you learn to love a real person. That's challenging, yes? In the context of community and teaching others to be and do the same. Make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. That right there, that's for all of us. That is for all of us. So I just wanted to put that in place. So let's, uh, let's kind of go from the generalities to the specifics. So I've titled this sermon, Peter, the, the, the Disciple of Contrast. And as I use the word contrast in this sermon, I want you to uh, hear the word gap, a gap. So as we walk through Peter's life, and we're going to be looking at a ton of different passages, so make sure somehow, some way, you have your Bible ready, because we're going to be going all over the place. Peter had gaps in his life, and here's what I mean by that. Gaps between the way he was living and the way he was supposed to be living. Might put it this way, gaps between the real and the ideal. So where do we first meet Simon Peter in the Gospel accounts? First, Matthew, Matthew 4.18, and a corresponding passage, Mark 1.16, they talk about the same event. As he, Jesus, was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. It's interesting, as I walk through these accounts, that the first appearance of Peter in all of the Gospels, all four Gospels, it's an interaction somehow, some way, with Jesus. Luke chapter 4. After he, that is Jesus, left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Now I want you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 35. All four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the very first instance that we are introduced to Simon, to Peter, to Simon, Peter, it's always in the context of interaction, somehow, someway, with Jesus. So John chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, So what are you looking for? These two disciples said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, uh, Where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two. One of the two of John, the Baptist's disciples, who heard John and followed him. He, that is Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he, Andrew, brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, notice, like 
In John's Gospel, the first encounter between Jesus and Simon is this. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. If you know anything about um, the right to name in that culture, it revealed ownership. It revealed authority. So from the get-go, Jesus is trying to help Peter understand you are mine. You are mine. So before we dive into uh, more passages and look at these contrasts, I want to throw some interesting observations concerning Peter in his apprenticeship to Jesus. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except for Jesus. No disciple speaks as often as Peter. In fact, he is recorded as asking more questions than all of the other disciples combined. Does that, does that surprise you? Does that shock you? No disciple is spoken to by Jesus as often as Peter. No disciple ever rebukes Jesus except Peter. No disciple is more frequently rebuked by Jesus than Peter. No disciple confessed Jesus more boldly or acknowledged his lordship more explicitly than are you beginning than Peter? Are you beginning to get a picture of Peter? Like this dude is out there, isn't he? Say what you may about Peter, but he was in it. Are we in it? He had, his, he had his failures. He had his foibles. No doubt about it. But one thing you cannot accuse Peter of is standing on the sidelines. You can't accuse him of that. Yes, this, this, this um, mixed up picture of him. He gets it, he doesn't get it. He gets it, he doesn't get it. He gets it, he doesn't get it. Just like you and me. We get it, we don't get it. We get it, we don't get it. So, Whatever your picture of Peter is, it must include, he was in the game, man. He was in the game. No disciple verbally denied Jesus as forcefully as Peter. No disciple was praised by Jesus quite like Peter. And finally, no disciple was ever addressed as Satan by Jesus except Peter. Peter is a mixed bag, yes? Think about your apprenticeship to Jesus. Are we not all a mixed bag? Right? There is much in Peter's life that we can resonate with. In Peter's apprenticeship to Jesus, there was often a contrast. There was also, uh, often a gap between the real and the ideal. And if we're honest with ourselves, the same is true. There is often a contrast. I feel it. There is often a gap between the real, the way I'm actually living, and the ideal in my apprenticeship to Jesus. So we're going to walk through four different, especially towards 
the, the later end of Jesus' ministry, starting about midpoint, and, and look at some contrast between how Peter was and who he became. We're going to look at the gospel passage first, and then we're going to go to near the end of Peter's life when he penned 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Anything change? Was there any transformation? Was there any growth? Is there anything we can learn that might help us with our gaps? So we're going to cover a lot of territory. Invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 16. The scene is this. Jesus has intentionally taken the boys to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was north of the Sea of Galilee. And it was, a, it was a Roman stronghold, and it was pretty depraved. Some pretty sick, twisted things went on there. But Jesus took them because he wanted to know, are the disciples ready for me to talk about the cross? Are they ready for me to talk about my death? Matthew 16, going to start at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But I'm convinced that that was just a preliminary question because Jesus was really interested in the response to the second question. Here it is. But you, he asked them, the twelve. Who do you say that I am? Who speaks up? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Look at Jesus' response in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Verse 20. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, this is about halfway through Jesus' ministry. He's like, okay, they get it. Now the cross. Verse 21. From then on. Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen. Like, this is not the way it's supposed to be, Jesus. Did you not get the memo? You are a political Messiah. You are here to help us overthrow Roman rule and restore to us the glory days of Israel, like it was with David and Solomon. Don't you get it? Question for you. In your heart of hearts, have you ever had a similar conversation with Jesus? Like, Jesus, um, 
that's really not the way this situation is supposed to go. Can you relate to Peter there? I've let Jesus know more than a time or two that he was wrong. That that wasn't supposed to go that way. Hmm. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. This isn't like, what? Get behind me, Satan. Watch this. You, Peter, are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And if we parse it out a little bit more, Peter, you don't have God's agenda at heart. You have your agenda at heart. Peter... Get over yourself. Peter, it's not about you. It's about my Heavenly Father. Did Peter learn anything? 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10, I think he did. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil... Do you think he's talking from personal experience here? I think so. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. He did it to me. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace. This word grace is a common theme in Peter's writings. Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Do you see what happened to Peter? Because he had been with Jesus. I get it. Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit dwelling within him, the Spirit of Christ, because he has been with Jesus. He was what? He was being transformed from glory to glory to glory. And so are you. And so am I. Simply because the book isn't finished, it doesn't necessarily follow that we shouldn't keep reading. Right? Simply because you are not who you should be entirely, it doesn't necessarily follow that someday you won't be who you should be entirely. There is hope there. What's, is there not hope in what we just celebrated, communion, Lord's? Does that not point to something? Does that not signify something? Yes, it does. Turn to John chapter 13. Now we are near the, the, this is upper room stuff. Very near the, uh, the, the, the betrayal, the cross. This is where Jesus sets an example for the boys. Kind of a final teaching where he washes their feet. John chapter 13. I'm going to begin at verse 6. So he, he walks around and, you know, he's got the basin and the towel. This should never have happened. This wasn't for Jesus to do, or was it? What was he doing? This was for the lowest of the low. This was for the servant of the house to take care of this. But wait, there was just 13 of them there. There was no servant there, or was there? 
Yes, there was a servant. His name was Jesus. And he was setting an example for them. He co- so he comes to Simon Peter who asks him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like, seriously? It's okay for the other guys. It's okay for James and John. But I kind of, I, I don't, let's not do this. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. Peter says, nope, not happening. You will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, look at this. This is the all-in Simon Peter. Okay, not just my feet, but everything. Just, let's do this. If we're going to do it, let's do this. Now go to verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since this is what I am. So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Skip all the way down to verse 34. The reason I'm doing that is I want to help you understand Jesus has now left the scene. Okay? So it's now Jesus and the eleven. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Did Peter get it? Did he get the message? Eventually he did. For we read in 1 Peter 4, 7-8, through 8, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Now watch this. Do you think the words of Jesus were ringing in his ears as he's penning these words? Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. This man gets it. This man is taught... When he says love covers a multitude of sins... He's talking from personal experience. The love of Jesus covered so much in his life, from glory to glory. Next passage, Luke chapter 22. This is that incredible scene where Peter denies Jesus. Luke 22, all the way to verse 54. Luke 22 Verse 54, they seized him, that is Jesus, led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Strategic pause here. I I need to, like editorial comment, I need to insert this. Twelve disciples, Judas is already gone, now there's eleven. Nine at this point have fled. Only two have remained to this point, Peter and John. Again, whatever you say about Peter, 
His foolishness, his foibles, his imperfections, that's all true. But if you're going to paint an accurate picture of Peter, you also have to say, he was there. He was all in. He was imperfectly all in, but he was all in. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, This man, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. You can feel the passion, the emotion rising up in Peter. With each encounter, about an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since this guy is also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, this is one of the most piercing moments in all of Scripture, certainly in the Gospels. Immediately, while Peter was still speaking, words still coming out of his mouth, the rooster crowed, just like Jesus said it would. Peter, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows enter the scene then the Lord turned what was the look I want to know what Jesus face looked like In that moment. Was it, was it a look of condemnation? A finger pointing? I don't think so. I don't think that's the kind of look. Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said to him before the rooster crows today. You will deny me three times. Peter went outside. And he wept bitterly. Peter sat in it for a while. Dear brothers and sisters, I think there are times when we have blown it, when others have blown it, I think there's a time to allow people to sit in it for a while. To really come to grips with what has happened, what we have done. Peter sat in it. And it would serve him well. Because there's this incredible restoration coming on the scene. He went outside and wept bitterly. I guess my counsel to us looking at Peter's life would be this. Don't be so quick 
to rescue people from their poor choices. I think there is wisdom in allowing one another to sit in it for a while. Not forever, but for a while. So that we can feel the weight of our choice. I think there's wisdom there. So that down the road, we will think, you know what? Not doing that again. That hurt too much. Not doing that again. Did Peter learn from this? 1 Peter 3, 13-15. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Do you think as Peter was penning these words, there was a scene, the emotions in his mind and heart? But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. From glory to glory. Last passage. John chapter 21. So this is post-resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead. The boys were out fishing. Jesus was cooking breakfast on the seashore. <coughs> they eat. And Peter, or Jesus and Peter, have this conversation. Peter is trying to help, Jesus is trying to help Peter what the end of his life is kind of, sort of going to look like. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, John 21, verses 18 and 19, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, Peter, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he said to Peter, Follow me. As we look at the very end of Peter's life, in 2 Peter, he, if, you, if you've ever read 2 Peter, Peter knows his time is short. Like, it's super short. 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15, Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside this tent. He's talking about his body. As our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. And I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. Something happened. Or a lot of somethings happened. To see, to witness the transformation of Peter in the Gospels to Peter near the end of his life. What? What did happen? He'd been with Jesus. And now the Spirit of Christ was dwelling with 
in him. What might we learn through Peter and Jesus' interactions that might inform us when there is a contrast, a gap between the real and the ideal in our lives? Between the real, how I'm currently apprenticed to Jesus, and how I ought to be apprenticed to Jesus. Because the reality, brothers and sisters, is there are gaps. There's gaps in my life, and there's gaps. So what do we do? We throw up our hands in despair? Is that what, that's not what Peter did. That is not what Peter did. I think, if I could take some liberties here, I think if Peter, I don't think I'm going on a limb, but I think if Peter were here, like standing here and talking to us today. I think his counsel to us and the gaps in our lives would involve at least something that he heard from Jesus' lips some 2,000 years ago, but that we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, that maybe we need to hear again freshly and newly. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you feel the weight? Do you feel the weight between the real and the ideal in your life? Jesus says, come to me. You feel that weight? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Unfortunately, I think we in Christendom, specifically evangelical Christendom, I think we're of the opinion that the gospel, the good news, that God is reconciling everything to himself in Jesus Christ, I think we think that's for salvation, not for our sanctification. That's false. The gospel is not just about our salvation. The gospel is also about our sanctification, about closing the gap between the real and the ideal in our lives. That's why every single day, friend, brother and sister, every single day we need to revisit the gospel. We need to revisit the good news. That God is reconciling the world to Himself in Christ. And that reconciliation includes the gaps in our lives. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's not just a one-off statement from Jesus to us. That's a statement from Jesus to us that needs to be revisited every day, and if we're real, several times every day. And I think Peter would go on to say something like this to us. My experience with Jesus was that when there was a significant contrast, a gap in my life, between the real 
and the ideal in my apprenticeship to him? His heart posture. Hear this, dear saint. His heart posture toward me was not an accusing finger, but rather open arms. And maybe, just maybe, that's why Peter's final recorded words were these in 2 Peter 3.18. This is how he closes. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Those weren't just words for Peter. Those words were his lived experience. And God willing, may those same words be our lived experience. Let's pray.